Today marks the end of our sermon series this fall on, from the book of Psalms, in which we've gone through a selection of many Psalms, and I don't know how you have felt, but I've learned a lot, both hearing and considering the Psalms, as well as studying them, and have discovered, rediscovered their passion, as well as their, their depth and theological intricacy that's woven up within all of the poetry. And as we close with Psalm 63, I encourage you to continue reading the Psalms throughout the year. The church, many Christians, have found the Psalms to be the, the central way of relating to God uh, through the scriptures. And so it's important, I encourage you to continue meditating on them throughout the course of the year. As we begin in January, we'll be beginning a new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And there we'll be learning about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he taught. And we'll be journeying with Jesus from Galilee as the book of Mark goes down into Jerusalem. Join me with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we invite you to be here. We, we cry out that you would bear fruit in the desert. And that we would see it right before our very eyes this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past March, I was with my family. We went on a family vacation to Death Valley, California. So Tracy and the kids, we met with Tracy's parents who live in, out in California, and we journeyed into the desert. Now, growing up in Boston, I never would imagine going to the desert and using up a week of my vacation to do so. And on the very first morning, uh, my father-in-law convinced me and Tracy to get up before dawn and to go to Zabriskie Point and there to watch the sun rise over the desert. And I admit I was in doubt. It was cold, it was March, and it was chilly. It was far too early in my opinion, and I didn't even have a cup of coffee yet. Now Death Valley is actually the largest national park in the continental United States. There are actually four larger parks in the U.S., but they're all in Alaska. Death Valley is the largest in the continental U.S., and while I was waiting there for the sun to rise, there was a sign that said, the draw of the desert is eternal. And as I read that, I thought it must surely must be an exaggeration. Now, Death Valley is a national park, but really, does it deserve a vacation? It's desolate. It's North America's driest and hottest and actually lowest point. It's full of extremes. It's 282 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains that are 11,000 feet and snow caps in the spring. Death Valley is actually a, it's an ancient lake. It's about 10 miles wide, 90 miles long, and it was about 600 feet deep. But now, of course, it's just full of rocks, salt, and borax. I admit the run reason why I was willing to go and to listen to my in-laws, you should listen to your in-laws, but the, the one reason why I was willing to do it was because there's a ranch in the middle of Death Valley, and the ranch has a golf course, and that's why I went. <laughs> but as I was there, not the golf course, but the, but the desert, I did sense something metaphorical, kind of calling me. 
And it raises the question for all of us. Perhaps in your life today, you feel like there is a bit of a desert. You're wandering, you're weary, you're dry and you're thirsty. You're wondering where God is. You're wondering why there is this suffering going on. The 63rd Psalm does suggest to us, I think, that the draw of the desert is eternal. The desert is the soul's mirror. It's a howling wilderness. It has terrible temptation, but it's also a time of illumination where the enemy loses and God shines. Now look at verse one. It says, you God are my God, earnestly I seek you. And some of the older English translations don't say earnestly seek, they say early will I seek you. And Hebrew scholars definitely agree the word does not mean early, it means earnestly. And most translations now make it earnestly I seek you, not early. Nevertheless, the, the, the verb, when it's in a noun form, means dawn or early morning. And when you look at verse 6, it talks about, the psalmist talks about the watches of the night. And so you can see why some of the translators, seeing that this word in its noun form could mean early, were picturing the psalmist, the psalmist is portraying himself, not only being in a desert, but being in the darkness of the desert. The Judean wasteland, the wilderness, which lies between Jerusalem and then to the east, all the way to the Dead Sea, it's a, a place that cannot be navigated, not at least by night. It consists of rugged topography, uh, cliffs, ravines, pits, treacherous paths. Uh, it's actually a lot like uh, the same kind of terrain as Death Valley. And when you look at Psalm 63, the very heading of the psalm, which reads a psalm for, of David when he was in the desert of Judah, that the likely context in which David is writing Psalm 63 was when he was fleeing Absalom during a coup. And you can read about it in 2 Samuel, well, from 14 all the way to chapters 19, but particularly at 2 Samuel chapter 15, you have the coup of David's son, Absalom, who had been stirring the people of Israel against David for actually good reasons. David was by no means a perfect king, and he had committed several sins and allowed for multiple injustices. And Absalom, his son, took advantage of this and brought an army of Israel, and David only had an hour or two to escape out of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 15.30, it actually says that he, he left Jerusalem barefoot, uh, which I suppose is an indication of both his mourning, that he was sad, but also the rush to escape. And there's a suggestion with, within uh, 2 Samuel 15 that at this time, it wasn't just David who went into the desert, it was actually a, a, a very large entourage I would imagine a thousand people or more went with him who were loyal to David and to his throne. And the text tells us in 2 Samuel that he uh, only had a couple of donkeys. Someone brought him as he was leaving a couple donkeys, 200 loaves of bread and, and one uh, wineskin. And 
you can imagine how do a, a, a thousand plus people survive in the desert on that. But off they went into the desert of Judah. And so Psalm 63 is written in this context of utter humiliation, of desperation, in which David flees for his life, abandoning his throne to his very own son. And what's interesting in verse 1 is that in this experience of going into the desert, David doesn't rail against God. He doesn't complain against God. He goes into this moment of self-reflection in which he realizes that the desert is this place of illumination. Let me structure my thoughts around two major ideas that I think come out of Psalm 63. The desert is a place of illumination. It's a place that illuminates the soul, and it is a place that illuminates the Savior. And let me tackle each one of those as we reflect on this psalm. First, the desert illuminates the soul. Look at verse 1. From the ESV, it says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So picture with me David and his companions who have unexpectedly left the bosom of Jerusalem and now they are thrust with very little food or drink into this barren wasteland. And David, within this experience, rather than complaining, looks within. He looks within himself. And he, what he is suggesting to us in verse 1 is that he realizes something about his own soul. He realizes that the desert is not actually all around him. The desert is within. It's my very soul that is dry and weary. The desert, he begins to realize, is not out there. It's in me. I am the wilderness. My soul is faint and dry and empty. Now, suggesting that one's soul is uh, a desert surely sounds strange to our ears, perhaps even offensive to modern ears. But that's because it seems to me that we operate as if the state of our soul is dependent on our material surroundings. If my circumstances around me are positive, then myself, my soul, is satiated, it's satisfied, it's, it's happy. And this Amer American spirituality, if you will, is especially focused on the obtaining of things. It's not about just gifts, but obtaining of degrees and obtaining of jobs, of climbing the ladder, of having a, a wonderful family, and so on and so forth. It can be, when it's disconnected especially from God, a kind of materialism that is a religious-like endeavor in which as we go after these things, we're actually, what's really going on is you're aiming to satisfy your soul. Materialism 
never satisfies. No matter how many things you gather around yourself, no matter how good those things are. Experience and scripture demonstrate that they do not satisfy. They bring a temporary sensation of feeling full, of satiated. But in reality, it's empty. It reminds me of a 1991 kids movie called Hook, where Robin Williams, who's the star in the movie, plays Peter Pan. And Peter Pan and his gang of lost boys, they're actually dilapidated and, and quite hungry because they have nothing. And as they sit at, a, at the table over their empty plates, they begin to imagine a meal. And uh, the, the film kind of goes back and forth between their imagination of what they're seeing, which is this tremendous feast of, of pies and cakes and fried chicken and everything a young boy would, would delight in eating. And then the, the picture pans back into them holding nothing and their plates being utterly empty. The boys were, were starving. And yet, for a moment, it seemed, their imaginations allowed them to feel full. And that's what material things actually has an effect on us in which it, it's sneaky, it, it, it tricks the soul. It tricks the soul into thinking that I'm temporarily happy. I'm temporarily, I feel actually quite satisfied. So these things must be what actually gives me food. But in reality, they're, they're nothing. It's like feeding yourself all of these things, but it's just an empty plate. Which is why I think Jesus gave one of his hard sayings in which he said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, God loves the rich as much as he loves the poor. There's no question about that. But what Jesus is teaching, and this is in Mark 10, is that too often when we have those things, wealth and abundance around us, we think we're full and satisfied. And seeking God becomes very difficult, does it not? It's only when things go badly. It's only when something is pulled away that is really important to you. It's only when you enter into a desert, so to speak, that the soul awakens to its starvation. I am in a desert. Reminds me of the testimony of one of our congregants who, when he was a young man, was on track for a very successful career and he and his wife had their second child and after the birth of this second child his wife became very ill unto death and of course this young man only in his 30s was very worried begging God asking God that if you would just heal my wife I will, he vow, made a vow, I'll go to church for the rest of my life. Speaking out of desperation. He's a man of, of integrity and of, and of goodwill, and the Lord brought healing to his wife. And both he and his wife and family began to attend church. It was for several years that they attended church, but they never heard the good news, because as you know, there are many churches that actually do not 
go to the Bible very often and do not preach the good news of Jesus Christ. But one day his family went into a, a gospel preaching church and they heard the gospel and they responded. And he gave his life over, both of them gave their life over to Jesus Christ. And they've lived for decades now following Jesus using all of their possessions and giving over to him, to Jesus Christ. But you see, it was only in the desperation. It was only when he had entered into the desert of Judah that he began to realize he, in fact, had great need, spurring him to call on to the Lord. So what are you facing this day? Disease? Divorce? Death in your family? Are you deeply disappointed with some relationship? Have you lost a job or become disillusioned with your work? Have you suffered some injustice? Have you made some dumb choice that has brought on a lot of difficulty into your life? This is the desert experience. You know what it is. Everyone experiences it. Everyone goes into the desert of Judah. And so it was with this psalm, with David. So look at David's response. It's right here in the very first verse, in the first phrase where he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Now in this phrase, David is doing two things simultaneously. First, he is renouncing. He is renouncing the idols of his heart. By saying who God is, he's renouncing who the gods are not. So we can do the same. Money is not my God. Security is not my God. Sex is not my God. Technology is not my God. Getting married is not my God. The university is not my God. Accolades at work are not my God. Church is not my God. Health is not my God. Children are not my God. Now indeed, all of these things are good, created and given by God, but they are not God. Oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. You could hear the passion within David in the desert as he begins to realize there is one God. There is only one to turn to. And it is not anything around him. David not only renounces the idols, but he resolves himself to a single desire, to a single ambition or purpose. Earnestly, I seek you. Seeking God is not a pastime. It's not a hobby. The church is not a country club where we aim to do a little bit of good and balance the budget and the process. Rather, it's God who is most important. He is our greatest love. It's he who we are called to earnestly seek, to seek the Lord with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Are you doing this? Where is your life? What are you pursuing? 
What is the very core and center of what you're seeking? The prophet Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Hosea says, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Jeremiah says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Apostle Paul says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, there will be wrath and fury. And even our Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So that is the promise of Jesus Christ and throughout the whole scriptures, that if we earnestly seek him, you will succeed. And upon success, what will you discover? You will discover verse 3, as David did in the midst of that desert, that your steadfast love is better than life. It's better than life. In other words, take all the money in the world, all the sex in the world, throw in some physical strength from an elite athlete, beauty from Hollywood, throw in some of your best friends that you could imagine, the prestige of the academy, the power of the presidency, wrap it all up, put a bow on it, put it under the tree, open up the present, and you will be disappointed. It is God. He alone. It's his love. Where it says in my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And so, friends, the desert illuminates the soul. It illuminates the soul. Without God, your internal self is a desert. And it doesn't matter what the external circumstances are. But with God, your internal self finds the deepest of satisfaction, regardless of your external circumstances. And so it is in the desert that there is illumination and there is freedom. Well, the desert not only brings illumination of the soul, let me move to the second point. The desert illuminates the Savior. It shows us some of who God really is in his character. See, when any of us go into the desert and we experience suffering, we invariably ask the question, why? And we say, where are you, God? The desert gives us that experience that God is not there. The skeptics, as they experience hardship, they say, well, see, God wasn't there at all ever before. It's just a figment of your imagination. The Christian, as he or she enters the, the desert, gets shaken. Maybe I was mistaken. Maybe the things that happened to me before with God, maybe I made them up. Because how can this be happening now? Well, the Bible provides, not complete, but gives us a sense of some of the reasons 
why we are drawn into the desert. Sometimes it's because of our foolishness. Sometimes it's to give God the glory. Sometimes it's in order to eliminate all the distractions that are confusing you so that in the desert you can begin to focus on God. And sometimes we're just not told. You have to just trust. That's part of what it means to be in the desert. I also suspect that part of the reason we are drawn into the desert actually has something to do with the nature of God and the nature of what it means to be a human. Because if you think about it, if God were to bring himself in all of his glory and fullness, what would be our response? Well, the scriptures repeatedly say we would actually just die. We would dissolve. We cannot bear to be in the unmitigated glory of God. And so God, by condescension, immediately has to veil himself in order to even communicate something to us about his love and about his nature. And it seems to me that since he desires for us to love him as much as he loves us, he also wants our love for him to be voluntary and out of the heart with consent. And if he comes with all of his glory, how could we possibly respond with consent, out of love. We would sheerly be trembling before him. And I think that's part of the reason why he comes and then he seems to withdraw. He reveals a little of himself and you experience that presence and then it seems to go away. Part of that is out of his condescension, for, out of love for us, because we could not do it anyway. Our very human constitution cannot bear such glory, and so he comes veiled, and only periodically, giving us the chance to absorb and to understand and to yearn for more. In addition to that, the, the desert illuminates our own hearts in which our love gets purified and distilled. Let's face it, if you're like me, your love is narcissistic, self-indulgent. Even our love for God, and if you look back on your own life, the motivations to love God are often have some personal self-indulgence in them. And God so brings us into the desert in order to purify our love for him. Because do you love God or do you love the, what God gives and all of his bounty and abundance? You see, when you're brought into the desert, everything is pulled away, but not God. And there is our opportunity and our chance for our love to become what he desires it to be, to love him truly with purity, to love him for nothing else but for himself, just as he loves us for no other reason but out of his sheer love. He invites us into that life. And so the desert has many meanings and many reasons. And though it is difficult, though we do not wish the desert upon our worst enemies, there is something good. It brings about something good within the soul in which we begin to understand who God really is. The desert eliminates those distractions and it gives us a chance to experience what the psalmist experienced in verse three. 
to say your love is better than life. Or in verse 5, to feel the full satisfaction in him alone. Or in verse 8, to cling to him beyond clinging to all of life. So are you in the desert of Judah? And how are you responding? What should you do if this is where God has brought you? Well, let me suggest three, let's call them desert practices. Three desert practices if you're in the desert. The first comes out of verse 6, in which he says, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. To think is to meditate. The word literally means to meditate on God, which is to give serious thought and consideration, to focus the mind on him, to understand and to remember who he is and all that he has done and what his nature is and his character, to reflect on it, to enjoy it within your mind and within your heart. And even in verse 2 and verse 3, he remembers God's power and his glory and his covenant love. This kind of meditation is not like our friends who are Buddhists and in in how they talk about meditation and mindfulness meditation, as we'll often hear, hear about it in the United States. Mindfulness meditation in the Buddhist tradition is where one deliberately focuses the thoughts on one's thoughts and emotions and then, without judgment, dismisses them. The goal within this Buddhist practice is to enter completely into the present moment in order to extinguish all desire, because within Buddhism, suffering is caused by our desire, and the only way to deal with suffering is to eliminate desire itself. But this can be contrasted with biblical spirituality, which rejects that way of thinking regarding mindfulness meditation. Biblical spirituality, this meditation that we read about in Psalm 63, verse 6, is a call to focus all of the mind on God himself. It's not about the elimination of desire, not so. The desire for God is a God-given desire. And it is, in fact, the very essence of life. It's not about getting rid of desire. It is focusing all of your heart's desire on the single object of God, thinking about him, enjoying him, talking to him, communing in deep fellowship with him. So whether you're on a bed of sleeplessness or a bed of illness or your deathbed or a bed of sorrow, use this as an opportunity in the watches of the night to reflect and to remember God, turning to scripture and allowing it to guide your meditation on him. So meditate on God. A second desert practice is this. It's to voluntarily deny yourself. Because let's face it, most of us are living in unbelievable abundance in which we have so much And that so much is treacherous to your soul. And so there are practices that scripture lays out for us. One is to fast, to fast from food. Tracy and I fasted from food twice this week in preparation for this sermon, partly for my own self and partly for you. 
that you would be hungry to meet God in a new way. And fasting is a way where you, when your stomach grumbles, it reminds you that I hunger for God more than even for my own bread. So fast. Another desert practice of voluntarily entering into the desert is give away your money. Money holds us and holds our hearts. It makes us feel secure and powerful. And it's treacherous to your soul. I know it firsthand. And the only way to deal with that abundance is you get rid of it. You give it away to causes and organizations that will use it for the advancement of the gospel and for the blessing of the poor. That's why we give away our money, to do both of those things. And if your money is holding you, if your bank account seems full and it's giving you a lot of satisfaction, there's only one act to do. You get rid of it. And I encourage you to do it. That's what I've done. And it's something that we have to repeatedly do. I know preachers aren't supposed to talk about money, but I don't care because it's true. I know money holds. It holds me. It holds you. So enter into the desert in this way. And finally, another desert practice is, is to, in the morning, may your very first thing be to go to God. How often do you get up Look at the news. What's going on with the impeachment? Or what emails do I have? Oh, I got to respond to this and this and this. And oh, that's right, my schedule. I got to do this and that. Or here's some texts I've got to get to. Is that your morning? Are those your first thoughts? You enter voluntarily into the desert by the very first thing. And I'm convinced that this is something that you will do well if you do it is to give your mind and your emotions over to, the God, to God. Before you look at email, before you get busy with the day, go to scripture and pray and enter into that communion space. It will change your day. So fast and give your money away and, and go to God first in the morning. But then finally, if you're in the desert, a final desert practice is to choose hope. Choose hope. Hope is the anticipation that God will bring about his good future, both for the whole world as well as for you. Your desert is not forever. Hope realizes that night will yield to the illumination of the sun. In fact, today is uh, winter, the winter equinox, December 22nd. It's the darkest day of the year. Nine hours, four minutes, and 37 seconds. But tomorrow, the day gets longer and longer and longer. And even as the, the solar system shows us here, hope in the Lord, for he is coming. Wait on him. There are actually eight I will statements in Psalm 63. Verse 3 says, my lips will glorify him. The psalmist is looking to the future and speaking the truth into the present. Verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, I will be fully satisfied. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Verse 9, those who want to destroy me will be destroyed. 
Verse 10, they will be given over to the sword and become fools for food for jackals. And then speaking about himself, David says in verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. He's speaking hope by speaking the future into the very present. This is what is. This is what will be. And you can declare it, but you have to choose it. You can choose despair if you're in the desert. You can choose to turn inward and to lose yourself in the sadness and in the mourning or choose hope. Can you think of something in which you have been tempted to despair? Is there something right now in which you are on the cusp of despairing? Speak hope and trust in God and he will show you his way. Well, I was there at Zabriskie Point with my wife and father-in-law and we were waiting for the dawn. It was freezing and like I said, I had to be convinced to come there and to wait. The place was full. There were hundreds of people up at this point because it has this amazing view of, of Death Valley. And people were there from all over the world, speaking various languages, setting up tripods and putting out their cameras for the first flash of the light over the desert. While we were waiting, it was just brown and dull. It was dark and it was cold. Just moments before the sun was supposed to strike the desert, all of a sudden this man starts coming up from a trail right in front of the panoramic view and everyone started saying, get out of the way, move! The man was, didn't know what he was doing, walked into the way and thankfully he got out of the way before the pictures came. Everyone stood breathless as the top of Telescope Peak, which is the tallest mountain around Death Valley, over 11,000 feet, snow-capped. At the very tip, the light hit that peak, and we were breathless and silent. It was awesome. And then the light started to descend down the whole mountain range quite quickly. And then behind us, there were shorter mountains, and the sun actually came up. You could began to see the sun. And as the light came down, it sprung over the entire desert. And that muted browns became a glorious display of, of many colors. It was really worth it. And there I, I began to believe that the draw of the desert is eternal. It's the soul's mirror. It's a howling wilderness. It's a place of terrible temptation. But it's a, also a time for illumination where the enemy is defeated and the Savior shines. Christmas is a desert experience in which Christ comes down 
from the abundance of the Father, just like David was in Jerusalem. And Christ comes into our desert, taking on flesh, taking on the enemies. And truly, he brought new life, if you will hope in him. Lord Jesus, take the desert of our souls and we cry out to you in Jesus Christ to bear an abundance of fruit for your glory.